our society has lost its way when it comes to marriage and family. I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement. I mean, people across the spectrum of opinion will in some way think that, yeah, we've lost our way a little bit with marriage and family. So some people will look at high divorce rates and declining rates of marriage and say that's evidence of us losing our way. Some people will look at even the declining numbers of abortion, those still way too high, and say, yeah, that's evidence of a society losing its way. Other people will look at the incidence of abuse and neglect in homes or look at children separated at the, at the border and they will see in that evidence of a society that has lost its way. I don't think that's particularly controversial. But beneath that statement are a lot of other things that are controversial. So for example, is marriage between one man and one woman? Or is it between any two people who love each other? And why stop at two? You ask those questions and controversy. Or can a married couple divorce for any reason without fault? Should we make it easy to end bad marriages? And who gets to define bad marriages? Is it the couple or the state? Ask those questions and controversy. Or should the ability to have children be considered a central part of how we define marriage? Or are children optional, even expendable? Controversy. If you're about my age, you're probably imagining that this sermon has a soundtrack. It would be Prince's song, Controversy. But when it comes to marriage and family, there is, in fact, a lot of debate, a lot of controversy, a lot of strife in society and the church. Oftentimes, that controversy shows us, really, it's the first indication that we are losing our way. Now, when we lose our way about any subject in life, we don't need more human opinions. We don't need to go to our politicians to hear what they think, not in the first instance. We don't need more theories from our professors or from our teachers. We don't need to know what they're saying in the barbershop. We don't need to know what they're saying in the beauty parlor. We don't need more ideas and opinions from our know-it-all friends. When we lose our way, what we most fundamentally need is to hear from the one with the clearest mind, the deepest truth, and the warmest love. We need to take our controversies and our confusions and our questions to Jesus. Now here's the wonderful thing that we sometimes forget. We can today take our questions directly to Jesus and to hear directly from Jesus. Uh, he is the one who is 
king of kings and lord of lords, which means he's going to be the one who settles all of the controversies. And he is the one who calls us with these words, follow me. How do we hear from Jesus directly? Well, we go to the Bible. And we let the Bible speak to us the very truth of God. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to ask Jesus four of today's controversial questions about marriage and family. And I want us to hear Jesus from the Bible speak to us from another time and place all the way down to us in this time and in this place. So here are four questions I want us to ask Jesus this morning. Number one, Jesus, what do you think about no-fault divorce? What do you think about no-fault divorce? We'll see that in verses one to five. Number two, Jesus, what do you think about gay marriage and polygamy? What do you think about gay marriage and polygamy? We'll see that in verses six to nine. And then number three, Jesus, what do you think about divorce and remarriage? What do you think about remarriage? We'll see that in verses 10 to 12. And then number four, Jesus, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about abortion? Verses 13 to 16. This is the one who has called us to come follow him. And what he lays out for us in these passages are things for us to obey in faith, in hope, and in joy. Look with me in Mark chapter 10. I'll read for us verses 1 to 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So I thought we'd take all our controversial questions from society and from culture and even in the church, and we try to get them all done in one sermon. And we let the Lord Jesus answer them for us. So let's take that first question. Jesus, what do you think of no-fault divorce? 
Well, let me give you a little background on that. Maybe that's a new term to you. No-fault divorce is exactly what it sounds like. It's the ability for one spouse to file for a divorce without claiming that the other spouse is at fault in some way. Now, the first state to pass a no-fault divorce law, law was California in 1969. Now, uh, as of 2005, New York was the last state. All of the states in the Union, all 50 states, uh, have no-fault divorce laws on the books. And before these laws, in order to get a divorce, you actually had to prove wrongdoing on behalf of your other spouse. You had to prove that they were cruel or that they had abandoned you. You had to prove that they had been unfaithful in the marriage in some way. Um, you, you had to prove any number of sort of things in order for the state to recognize that divorce. And the argument has been that with no-fault divorce, um, you take basically the expense and the pain out of divorce. That when you cause two couples to have to argue about who is at fault, then there's a lot more acrimony, there's a lot more anger, uh, there's a lot more dissension, and there's a lot more expense. And so no-fault divorce has been thought to be an answer. Well, what's that got to do with our text this morning? Well, look at the Pharisees there in verse 1. They, they come to Jesus. Jesus is teaching, uh, as he often does. This is his custom. And then in verse 2, they roll up on Jesus, and the text says there they want to test Jesus. Now, one day they're going to figure out that testing Jesus is not the right thing to do. Submitting to him is. But they come up on him, and they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark's writing style is really kind of very short and to the point, so he doesn't always give us all the details. So if you compare this text to Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, where Matthew is recording the very same situation, Matthew adds a few words at the end. Matthew's version of this question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, can any old reason be used to divorce your spouse? So you might call this their version, a first century version of a no-fault divorce or, uh, or an any-reason divorce. Now, as we work in this passage of Scripture, I want us to pay attention not only to what Jesus says, uh, what he teaches us about marriage and family, I also want to, us to pay attention to how Jesus engages people on these controversial questions. Because I think as we observe how he engages, we learn something for ourselves in terms of strategy. Now notice the first thing here. The Lord answers their question uh, from verse 2 with the question of his own in verse 3. And I think we can learn from that. I, I know I can learn from that. I am so tempted to rush in with answers uh, right away when I'm asked something. But, but Jesus doesn't rush in with answers. He first wants to understand where his questioners are coming from. Now, this is especially important when you're dealing with painful, intimate issues like divorce. What's behind the question oftentimes matters as much as the question. So the Lord asks in verse 3, what did Moses command you? I think that's a genius question. I think it's a genius question because it does at least three things. Number one, it draws out the Pharisees' thinking and assumption. Number two, it directs the conversation directly to the scripture, to the Bible. 
And number three, it shifts the conversation from personal opinion in verse two, what do you think about this? It shifts it from personal opinion to divine command, verses three to five. In other words, Jesus takes the conversation out of the area of he said, she said, and he puts it on the solid rock of God's word. And beloved, whenever we're dealing with controversies or confusing questions, that's precisely where we want to be. We want to take our stand on the solid rock of God's word. So the next time someone asks us of our opinion about a controversial question, let's, let's follow what we see Jesus doing here. And let's ask him, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible command? Let's answer a question with a question from time to time. Now notice what happens. The Pharisees respond in verse 4 by saying, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they go back to Moses, who is the, the, the giver of the law, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And they say, this is what Moses has taught. You can write a certificate of divorce and you can put your wife Away. In other words, they're saying, according to Moses, we can get a divorce for any reason. Now, they seem to be thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. There, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes these words. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In Jesus' day, now, there was uh, some people who interpreted that word up there around verse 1, some indecency, and that, that phrase, finds no favor, they interpreted it in a very wide way. For example, there were some rabbis who said, basically, if a wife burned her husband's meal, that that would be sufficient grounds for divorce. So it's effectively a, an any reason divorce or a no fault divorce posture in terms of how they were interpreting Deuteronomy chapter 24. And really what they are trying to do is to proof text their way to a justification. They only cite one text, allude to it really, don't even quote it, and, and they want to use from that one text that one text is sort of developed a whole theology and practice around marriage and divorce. But Jesus, that won't work. You're not going to play Bible ping pong and proof text your way to victory with Jesus. So when the Lord hears their thinking, he recognizes the problem. Did you see that? It's a heart problem. The Lord says in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, the real issue being addressed in that passage of scripture is not the grounds for divorce, but the stony ground of the heart. God's law was meant to address man's heart. And because man's heart was so hard toward God's will, 
Moses wrote a law that took into account the hardness of their heart. So if you ask Jesus, what do you think about the Pharisees, any reason divorce, or what do you think about today's no-fault divorce, Jesus will answer the question by saying, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? Is there a hardness developing toward God, toward God's word, or toward your spouse that even prompts you to ask that question? This is, this is explosive, really, when we encounter Jesus this way. It's explosive for the Christian because we're the ones to whom he has given a new heart with the law written on it. Our hearts as Christians are meant to be soft toward God, soft toward his word, and soft toward our spouses. I mean, we are grace people and forgiveness people and reconciliation people and sacrificial love people. All of that is to come from a soft heart toward God and his word and our spouses. And that kind of heart should make a no-fault divorce or any reason divorce unthinkable to us, to the Christian. That's how Jesus thinks about it. Now, I understand we live in a fallen world, so this doesn't always work out this way. I get that. But what I want us to see this morning, what I think Jesus wants us to see, is that that fallenness and brokenness is not just out there in the world, it's in here in our souls, in our hearts. And the forgiveness, the unforgiveness, excuse me, that leads to a divorce for unbiblical reasons is not, is to be understood as hardness of heart. I've yet to see a divorce for unbiblical reasons that did not in some way involve at least one spouse in some kind of hard, stony heart reaction to the other spouse. That's why, beloved, hardness of heart is not just to be grieved, but also repented. Jesus is not a supporter of no-fault divorce. Which brings us to our second question, Jesus, what do you think about gay marriage and polygamy? These are controversial questions in our day. A lot of people believe that any two people, including people of the same sex or gender, as long as they love each other, ought to be able to marry. They say the defining issue is love, not sex or gender. Then there are those people who believe marriage does not have to be limited to two people. They don't get as much press in the popular culture, but they're out there. They say marriage can include any number of people in any number of arrangements and still be called marriage. But well, how, how should we think about these claims? More importantly, how does Jesus think about marriage? So Jesus does not let the Pharisees get away with proof texting. He first points out the problem in their hearts, as we saw in verse 5. That heart problem was causing them an interpretation problem with Deuteronomy 24. Just as an aside, beloved, um, that's important to know. Oftentimes, we misread the Bible because we misread our hearts. If our hearts are not right, our reading of the Bible won't be right. 
So Jesus checks them in that way in verse 5, but now he's going to go on to give them a, a basic theology of marriage in verses 6 to 9. So give a short tutorial on what marriage is. And, and if we want to improve our theological understanding of a topic, then we want to do what Jesus does here. We actually ought to go to the first references in the Bible on that topic. That's ordinarily the place to go to begin to sort of find our way if we have lost our way on some subject. Go to the first mentions of that subject in the Bible. That's what Jesus does here. He quotes from Genesis 1, verse 27, and he sandwiches that together with a quote from Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. So look with me in Mark chapter 10, 6 to 9. The Lord says there, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I think in this little mini teaching, Jesus gives us at least four things that are part of a basic theology of marriage. Number one, Jesus affirms the creation story as decisive. He affirms the creation story as decisive. See there, he starts with, but from the, the beginning of creation. In other words, Jesus does not treat Genesis 1 and 2 like it's mythology or poetry. Though it may have some elements of that, he's treating Genesis 1 and 2 as theological and historical fact. Not only that, Jesus thinks that the early chapters of Genesis are decisive for developing a theology of marriage and family as God intended it. The later command of Deuteronomy 24, which permits divorce, is meant to be interpreted in light of God's earlier word, Genesis 1 and 2, where marriage is created. I love this. Jesus ain't shy about using the oldest parts of the Bible to answer the newest questions of humanity. He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and affirms the creation story as decisive in defining marriage. Here's the second thing. Marriage is between one man and one woman. We see that in the quote of Genesis 1.27, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis 1 verse 27, that's the famous text where God says, let us make man in our own image. He says, let us uh, make them in our image, let us make them male and female, as Jesus quotes here. When you read that verse, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with marriage. But in God's mind, marriage is tied unbreakably to sex and gender. To be married is by definition to be one male and one female joined together. The two image bearers, they come together with both their similarities, they're both made in God's image, and their differences. They are of different genders. And, and they are compatible with each other in those differences and similarities. And together, they, they image forth more fully the glory of God in the world. Now, this is really important because no other pairing of any other two creatures does this. 
This is unique to biblical marriage. It's between one man and one woman. Number three, in this theology of marriage, Jesus points out that marriage creates a new family with the potential for creating other new families. You see what he says there in quoting uh, Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's something here that's just really astounding in Genesis 2.24. When God says this, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, when he says this to Adam and Eve, you do realize that Adam and Eve didn't know what a father and a mother even was. There were no fathers and mothers. They were the first father and mother. Eve becomes the mother of all living. But in this command is this expectation that marriage would produce children. Those children would grow up and they would marry other people and those would become new families. So, biblically speaking, marriage must carry in it the potential, at least, of replication, of procreation, of, of bringing forth other marriages that fill the earth with God's glory. Malachi 2.15 says this is why God created marriage. It's because he wanted offspring. Without the potential of offspring, the potential that happened in every family, in every situation, but without the ordinary potential of offspring, then it is not what God designed as marriage. Which brings us to a fourth thing. Marriage is meant to be permanent. It is an unbreakable, one-flesh union joined together by God. So notice the conclusion of the quote there. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We might put it this way. There are not two people in a marriage, but three. There's a bride, there's the groom, and there's God. The union of marriage is not created simply by getting a marriage license and uh, going to the chapel and saying your I do's. The actual union of marriage is created by this divine act where God takes two people who were before not related and he joins them together now as a new union, one flesh union related, get this, in a way that's stronger than the blood ties that they have with their parents. This is why they leave and they cleave to each other and they become a new unit by God's divine and miraculous action. And, and that wasn't a throwaway use of the word miraculous. Marriage is a miracle. God performs it by taking two people and making them one. Now that's Jesus' basic theology of marriage going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So, so what would Jesus say then about gay marriage and polygamy? Well, if we ask him what he thought about gay marriage, about marriage in general, he'll answer the way he does in verse 6, right? Jesus' understanding of what marriage is, one man and one woman joined together for life, rules out Gay marriage. According to Jesus, gay marriage is not marriage in a biblical sense. Now, the state can 
make laws that make gay marriage legal, but they can't make laws that make gay marriage moral. True marriage can only happen with one man and one woman. Well, that, that adjective one rules out polygamy too, doesn't it? It's not one man, two women. It's not one woman, two men, which would be polyandry. If we ask Jesus, what do you think about polygamy? We would get the same answer that we got to what he thinks about gay marriage. As God designed it, marriage takes one man, one woman, joins them together for life. Having multiple spouses is not in any biblical sense true marriage. You may be thinking about the number of people in the Bible who had multiple wives. So we do see polygamy in the Bible, but here's the interesting thing. We never see it endorsed. We never see it approved. What God approves here is what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. And so once again, the state can make laws that make polygamy and polyandry legal, but they can't make laws that make it moral. And as a society, we have lost our way if we aim to promote those things, gay marriage or polygamy, as good and right. Listen, beloved, God does not bless what he outlaws. If God says it's wrong, we can't put together ceremonies and things to sort of act like it's right or that God is endorsing. He's not. It's the very definition of sin. Which brings us to a third thing, third question. We might ask Jesus, among our controversial questions, what do you think about remarriage after divorce? Verse 10, Jesus leaves the crowd, goes into the house with his disciples. When they're inside, the disciples have more questions about marriage and divorce, what they just heard with uh, in the crowd. Jesus teaches them privately. And the first thing to notice is the principle that Jesus lays down in verses 12 to 13. Notice what's said there. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The saying's pretty straightforward and also pretty challenging. Jesus has just equated remarriage after a divorce with adultery. It's just called remarriage sexual sin. Now, that makes sense given what he's just said in verses 6 to 9. If marriage is what Jesus says it is, then divorce should not ordinarily happen. And if marriage is meant to be a permanent one flesh union between one man and one woman, then marrying someone else while your spouse is alive, is adultery. That's the basic principle that Jesus teaches here in Mark's version of this discussion. But Mark's version focuses on the basic principle. That's kind of Mark's writing style. He's very efficient. He's very to the point. He doesn't add a lot of detail that some of the other gospel writers add. So we need to bring in uh, another gospel writer. We need to bring Matthew back in. In Matthew chapter 9, this is what Matthew writes. He says, 
But Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus actually teaches that there is a circumstance in which divorce is permissible, even though it's not God's original intent. The word translated in Matthew 19 as sexual immorality uh, comes from the Greek word porneia. It's a word that actually refers to a range of sexually immoral acts, uh, from pornography, which is the root word, uh, porneia, to sexual immorality, like adultery and things of that sort. Um, so when we take the entire Bible's teaching on, on sort of divorce and the grounds for divorce or the permissible reasons for divorce, we actually find that Jesus teaches that there is there are such reasons, right? And when we take the whole Bible and put it together, we'll see that there are like three basic categories for when a divorce is permissible. Uh, first category is what we were just looking at in Matthew 19, verse 9. It's porneia, it's sexual immorality, adultery, uh, and so on. The second category is abandonment. Abandonment. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, particularly with an unbelieving spouse. If the unbelieving spouse is not willing to live any longer with the believing spouse, then uh, the believing spouse is no longer bound uh, in that marriage. So if we are abandoned, if we're left by a spouse. And number three um, is what we, what we might call breaking covenant. Now, marriage itself is a covenant. And so um, this notion of breaking covenant, as you might expect, uh, is, is sort of the big category, the big idea under which things like adultery and abandonment come. But there are other things that go in this category as well. If we were looking at Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 to 11, we'll see that part of what a, a, a marriage is supposed to do, a spouse is supposed to do, is to supply food and clothing and shelter, those kinds of basic needs. If someone fails to do that or refuses to do that, they're breaking covenant. Being cruel or abusive in marriage is breaking covenant. So we're not called to remain in abusive marriages. Um, if, if there's some element of abuse in the marriage, then, then a spouse has grounds for pursuing uh, the breaking of that marriage. Withholding the sort of sexual privileges in marriage. That, that's actually a grounds for a divorce, the sort of conjugal rights that we owe to each other, according to Exodus 21 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it says the husband's body belongs to the wife, and the wife's body belongs to the husband, refusing to care for each other in that way. It's grounds for divorce. Now, these are all biblical exceptions or reasons for ending a marriage. But when we think about these exceptions now, we need to be reminded of at least two things. First, we must understand that these, these are legitimate grounds for divorce. In other words, we cannot admit them with one hand and take them away with the other hand. And I think Christians sometimes do that. I'll say, yeah, adultery is, is grounds for divorce, but I just think you need to forgive and work it out. Well, some people will do that, and some people can't. And we're not called to make the folks who can't feel guilty because they can't. It's one of the ways God's word anticipates a fallen world. 
Second, now, we have to understand these biblical grounds for divorce are, in fact, exceptions. They are not the rule. Divorce is not commanded, but permitted. And the Lord's words in verse 5 must be considered. Hardness of heart is something to be avoided, even where we have grounds. Now, this relationship between biblical grounds for divorce and, and, and sort of trying to avoid a hardness of heart when you're dealing with those issues, that's tough. That's a really dynamic and, and tension-filled experience. And I think it's really wise for us as pastors and a church community to, to resist the temptation to think that every couple should work it out the same way. That's just not how this works. At, at, at any particular point in time, across time, a couple can be feeling differently about working things out. The sense of faith and hope and love can go up and down, right? So you, you sort of take a picture at this point, might look one way, take a picture at another point, might look a different way. So that just requires patience and steadiness from the rest of the Christian community and of Christian leaders. Also, no two couples are the same. What, what might be acceptable grounds for divorce for one couple might not be for another couple who thinks differently about that issue and about each other. Uh, one couple who's had a long history of, of difficulty and trouble might have less resilience and the ability to work through an issue when compared to another couple who has really had sort of a happy marriage, but now has hit this point in time where something's gone really wrong. So we don't want to sort of make one size fits all because that's not how marriage works. That's not how the world works. What might be hardness of heart in one person's decision might actually for another person be excruciating precisely because they've been keeping a soft heart toward God and the Word and their spouse. So walking through divorce requires great care and prayerfulness. We don't always get it right, either Christians or pastors. But in cases where there is biblical grounds, divorce is not a sin and people should not be treated as if they are lepers or something. Well, let's come down into that question of remarriage. What, what does Jesus think about remarriage after divorce? And to sort of answer that, we've got to keep in mind that there are sort of two categories that people might find themselves in. There are legitimate divorces and there are illegitimate divorces. In an illegitimate divorce, that's a divorce where the couple breaks up the marriage even though they don't have biblical grounds or reasons, legitimate reasons, to break up that marriage. In that case, Mark chapter 10, 11, 12, remarriage would be adultery. It would be sin. It's not allowed. In cases of illegitimate divorce, the, the first marriage is still valid in God's sight. That's precisely why Jesus uses the word adultery. Anyone who divorces without cause should not go on to remarry. 
especially for as long as the spouse is not married. They should seek wherever possible, with, with whatever means of grace God gives, they should seek to be reconciled or else live celibate lives. If reconciliation is impossible, then there is also this beautiful and high calling of celibacy. Now, in a legitimate divorce, which is a divorce that is based on biblical grounds where at least one of the spouses is at fault, there are two possibilities regarding remarriage. The, per the person who did not break covenant, but, but kept covenant, kept the marital vows, that person is free to remarry. But the person who is at fault, who created the grounds for the divorce, who, who broke covenant, that person is not free to remarry. Now, that's the sort of landscape on the question of remarriage. Jesus would answer, it depends. Is it a legitimate divorce or an illegitimate divorce? Or, or is the person the one who sinfully broke the covenant? Or the person is, it, is the person the one who tried to keep the covenant? Now, what if you're in that situation of either an illegitimate divorce and remarriage uh, or a legitimate divorce, but you were the one at fault and you've gone on to remarry? What, what should you do? You should do two things. First, you should repent of the things that led to the breaking of the first marriage covenant. You should confess those things to God. You should confess those things to your spouse. You should perhaps get some counseling or therapy, but you should turn away from those temptations, those desires, those actions that led to the breaking of the marriage covenant. That's going to be for the good of your soul. Leave, leave no sin, no known sin, unrepented. But then secondly, you should remain in the marriage that you are in. In other words, you don't annul the second marriage and then try and go back to the first spouse. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that, that was called an abomination. Instead, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 and 24, you are to remain in the state in which you were called. So you've come to understand this. You've come to be enlightened about these things. You've done the work of repentance. Now you need to stay in the calling that you're in and trust God's grace in this marriage and ask him to give you grace for that marriage. That, I think, is how you should go forward in this. So, according to Jesus and the Bible, whether or not someone can remarry after divorce depends on the circumstances of the divorce itself. Now, following Jesus, as you can see, means accepting sometimes some hard teaching in the most intimate areas of our lives. But that's going to be for our good. Which brings us to our final question. Jesus, what do you think about abortion? To consider that, I want to look briefly at verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But, Jesus, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong, belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them.
So now the scene switches. We've moved from conversations about marriage and divorce to people bringing their children to Jesus to, for Jesus to bless them. Now, this is a text that does not mention abortion by name. And if we're accustomed to proof texting, we'll look at a text like this and say, well, this isn't about abortion. Well, in one sense, that's true. In the same way that Genesis 1, verse 27, wasn't about marriage, didn't mention marriage. So in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, the Bible fits together as a whole. And one theological truth is meant to help us with other theological truths. So there's a context here that is very much applicable to our controversy today over abortion. To be clear, this paragraph is primarily about Jesus' love of children and the kingdom of God. But we can apply those things to the secondary question of abortion. So to apply it, we have to ask ourselves a question. What do we learn about Jesus' attitude toward children and their value in these verses? I'll suggest four things. Number one, we learn that Jesus loves children. Number two, we learn that Jesus gets angry when children are kept away from him. Number three, we learn that Jesus thinks that the very kingdom of God belongs to children. And number four, we learn that Jesus thinks the only way for us grown folk to get into the kingdom of heaven, to receive the kingdom, is to become like children. So if all of that is the case, then what do you think Jesus would say about a child's life in the womb? Well, I think he might say something like this. One, I, I want to hold them. Number two, don't make me angry by denying them life. Number three, to perform or to have an abortion then is not what it means to become like a child. And number four, a person risks losing the kingdom of God if they do not repent of performing or having an abortion. I mean, does anyone seriously think, given all that we know about Jesus, about his love, about his sacrifice for others, about, as we see in this text, his care for children who are marginalized in that society, does anybody seriously think that the Lord would be okay with abortion? given everything we know about Jesus from this paragraph and the, the entire Bible, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that Jesus would be okay with millions of children aborted in the womb. It says we watch Jesus interact with children that we in a society that's lost its way begin to find our way back to the true path. The world is lost about marriage and family, but 
But Jesus isn't. He never has been. So what does all this have to say to those of us who have been maybe divorced illegitimately? Those of us who have had abortions? Or if you're a man, you've paid for an abortion or pressured a woman to have an abortion or abandoned a woman in that circumstance? What does all of this have to say to us? How does Jesus look at us? Well, he looks at us with loving eyes. Eyes that are tender and inviting. And he says something like what we read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is God reasoning with us. Jesus knows all about all of our sins. He came from heaven to earth in order to pay the penalty for our sins when he dies on the cross. And he was raised from the grave and raised to heaven in order to satisfy the Father's anger and his requirements for righteousness from us. Oh, he knows all about our sins. His whole plan was to take care of all of our sins, even the sins that bring us the most shame, especially the sins that bring us the most shame and would, would tempt us to sort of bag away from, back away from him. No, 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 no. The first word is come. Come, let us reason together. And then this promise, even though your sins are red, they're scarlet, You'll be white as snow. You take us from the blood red guilt of sin and provide us the, the purity of holiness and righteousness that comes from Him. But why is this reason? Well, it's because Jesus has done everything we need done in order for our sins to be taken away and in order for us to be taken to God. He's atoned for our sins. He's paid the penalty. And he has been raised for our justification, our righteousness. In fact, he obeyed God's law in every way so that his obedience would become our obedience and the credit he gets for his obedience would become credit to us for obedience through faith in him. And so we would be reconciled through faith to God. So the most reasonable thing in the world is to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We simply need to admit, admit that we are sinners. Isn't that reasonable? And, and, and we simply need to admit that we need to be washed clean. Isn't that reasonable? And, and we simply need to trust Jesus to save us, to rescue us from God's coming judgment on this lost world. And as I've been saying, that's why he came. 
It's what the cross is about and the resurrection is about. And so it's reasonable to put our faith in him. Beloved, if you have lost your way for any reason, if you have gone your own way rather than God's way, if you've chosen the way of sin, the way of sexual immorality, the way of broken promises and broken relationships, even if you've chosen the way of death, murder, you can still come back to God. You can come to him and he will cleanse you. He will make you righteous. He will save you from judgment. His son, God's son, Jesus Christ, will take your place in judgment and will provide you righteousness. If you turn to him, confess your sins, repent of them, and believe in him and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. Your sins, my sins, though scarlet, will be white as snow. And our sins, though red, will become like lamb's wool. A whole new life with God, his way, forever. In love and in joy and righteousness and forgiveness. That's what God offers you. Go reason with him. Confess, repent, believe, and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the hope of the gospel, which reaches us in the most intimate and broken places and circumstances, which addresses our shame and our guilt which makes us righteous in your sight, free and forgiven. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that your death on the cross atoned for all the sins of the world. It atoned for abortion. It atoned for divorce. It atoned for homosexuality. It atoned for um, pornography. It atones for every sin that makes us to feel so dirty and makes us to feel so confused and makes us to feel even angry. Lord, you have, you have atoned for it. You've paid for it. I thank you that through faith in you, it is all removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. So we are known not by our sins. We are known by the name of Jesus. We're known as righteous. We're known as true. We're known as good. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and the life we have now joined together with him. Lord, I pray you give that life to someone this morning. I pray that those who have entered that life that we would indeed rejoice in it and be glad for so great a salvation. Build up the saints. Save the sinner, I pray. Strengthen us all. In Jesus' name.